Well, hey there, guys, and welcome to the John Campia Podcast. I am, of course, your host, John Campia, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's an exciting week. Comic-Con gets kicked off this week, starting this Wednesday. I, of course, will be out in San Diego at Comic-Con this week. And in case you did not know, I'm doing my annual Masters of the Web panel. If you're in San Diego and going to be at Comic-Con, please consider coming out to the Masters of the Web panel. It's a panel we do every single year. And this year, we've talked about, in the past, we've talked about horror films, sci-fi, comedy, all that kind of stuff. But this year, the theme is the current state of comic book movies. That is the theme and the topic of the panel this year. On the panel, of course, will be myself. We're also going to be joined by Christian Harloff. We're going to be joined by my buddy, John Schnepp. The champ, Dangerous Dan Merle from Screen Junkies is going to be on the panel. And the wonderful Trisha Hirschberger is also going to be on the panel. That panel, the Masters of the Web panel, is going to be Thursday morning, at 11 a.m. in room 7AB. Once again, that's Thursday morning at 11 a.m. in room 7AB. So if you're out there, we'd love for you to come down, say hi, take some pictures with us, and it'd be great to have you there. So with all that out of the way, a whole bunch of stuff went on uh, this weekend in movie news. Of course, the passing of uh, George Romero happened this weekend. Actually, there, there was a couple of deaths in the world of uh, film in Hollywood this weekend. I'm sure you've read about all of them by now. Uh, we had War for the Planet of the Apes came in first at the box office. But at what price? I mean, it opened up, it made the decision to open against Spider-Man being in its second week. Now, Dawn for the Planet, or Dawn of the Planet of the Apes opened a while ago, and it opened to $71 million on its opening weekend, and everybody loved the film. So you would think logic would dictate that this new film, War for the Planet of the Apes, since the last one made $71 million on its opening weekend, and everybody loved it, and the critic and fan response was huge, you'd expect it to make even more. However, although it won the weekend this weekend, it only made, I believe, around $54 million was its grand total. That's a huge dip. And so I think they rolled the dice. They, they took a gamble opening it against Spider-Man in its second weekend, and clearly it did not turn out the way they had hoped, but they still won the opening weekend, and great for it because it's a great movie. You should get out and check out War for the Planet of the Apes if you have not had a chance to see it yet. It is definitely worth your time to go see. I don't think it's quite as good as Dawn for the Planet of the Apes or Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, but it's definitely worthy of the trilogy, and it's, uh, I, I think I prefer it over the first one, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but I still think Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was better than this one. Either way, it's a solid, great movie. I think you'll enjoy it if you go on out to check it out. It's in my top five films of the year right now so far, so go and check it out if you have a chance. All right, so with all that out of the way, we've got a bunch of questions to get to today that you guys have sent in to me. Now, listen, if you've got a topic or opinion or question that you'd like to have on the John Campia podcast, just email it to me anytime at the John Campia podcast at gmail.com. I pull questions from there, put them on the show. So send them to me there. And also make sure you're following me on social media, on Facebook and on Twitter, just at John Campia. Cause once in a while I put out a shout for questions on there as well that you guys can send to me. So lots of different ways to get them to me. So let's get to it. The first question today comes to us from Daniel Trailer or Taylor, who writes, In almost every film I've seen this year, there have been people blatantly using their phones during the movie. 
some of the more popular movies even had entire rows of people on their phones. Do you think it's time for drive-in theaters to return in order to combat this problem? Because the understaffed theaters in my area don't seem capable. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. And look, I have issues with movie theaters just like everybody else. But I'm going to be honest. The problem of people taking out their phones and using their phones is nowhere near as bad. I can only speak from my own experience. You have your own experience, clearly, but all I can do is tell you mine. Mine has been that I have not found this to be anywhere near the level of problem that I found it to be like five, six, seven years ago. Uh, for the most part, I find that most people who go to movies are pretty civil. Now, once in a while, I still see a little glow over there. Somebody's clearly turned on their phone and checking their text messages or checking their email, whatever. And that's, that's annoying. I think it's been over a year since I've honestly seen somebody pull out a phone and try to talk on it. It's been at least a year since I've seen that and maybe a year or two before that one. So maybe I've seen that happen like once in the last two to three years. And movie theaters have done a better job too. Like I know like the Arclight theaters here in Hollywood and Sherman Oaks and all around the LA area, they actually have a staff person come out at the beginning of each movie and remind everybody, hey, remember everybody, it's rude to use your phone. Please make sure your phones are turned off. Don't take them out. If you have to use your phone, please step out of the auditorium to use them, blah, blah, blah. I know at AMC, theaters as a part of their pre-show they have a, a PSA it comes out hey remember using your phone is rude it's distracting other people please make sure it's turned off or step outside if you need to use them and I think for the most part it works now I don't know where you come from Daniel uh, but maybe things are different there the answer though is not drive-in theaters there's a reason drive-in theaters have almost completely disappeared they are they take a lot of real estate uh, you can only have one, one screen. Some cases have two or three. It's, uh, it's difficult and expensive and they have pretty much died off, uh, which is too bad because I love the drive-in theater experience. I absolutely love the drive-in theater experience. I remember my parents used to take us to drive-in seeing double and triple features at the drive-in used to be a lot of fun. Every once in a while too, instead of sitting in the car, bring lawn chairs and, you know, roll down the windows of the car so you can hear the speakers and just sit in lawn chairs and on a nice summer night. I mean, those used to be amazing. The problem is though, with a regular movie theater, you can go and you can use your theater year round. You can watch it in December and July and November and April. It doesn't matter. You can use your theater. With drive-in theaters, you can't, you can only use them at certain seasons in most parts of the country. Like you can't use them in fall or winter in a lot of places. And so these places have pretty much gone out of business, which is too bad. So I think the answer is that theaters need to take a more concentrated effort like the Arclight chain in Los Angeles or like AMC to really make the announcement at the beginning of movies. Hey folks, listen, if you take out your phone, then you're being one of those people. You're being one of those jerks that everybody complains about. That's you. So please don't do that. And I think for the most part over time that has worked. Like I said, at least for me living in an area that has made an effort to get those PSAs out there and to remind people that using your phone during a movie is rude. It's, it seems to have worked, at least from my experience. But anyway, that's just my thoughts. Thanks a lot for the question. All right. The next question today comes to us from Optimus the Gamer, who writes, Hey, John, when do you think the new trailer for Jurassic World 2 will pop up? Don't you think it was a little rushed since it took only four months to shoot? Um, well, let's get to that part in a second. When do I think a trailer will pop up? I mean, the movie doesn't open until June 22nd, 2018. Like, it's like almost still a year away. So, honestly, my honest opinion, or my honest opinion, my honest answer to that question is who cares? 
It's still a year away. I mean, why would they bother to put out a trailer now or even within the next two or three months? What's the point? I mean, seriously, think about this. I, there was a big trend where movies and studios were putting out trailers for films earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. And I think they've started to clue in, oh, they mean nothing. Putting out a big trailer a year in advance meant nothing. It didn't help us at all. Like they put out the King Arthur trailer at last year's Comic-Con. Didn't help the movie one little bit, even though the trailer got some pretty positive buzz. I mean, it, I mean, some people didn't like it, but it got everybody talking because it was so stylized and everything. But it got everybody talking. I think they're realizing now, what's the point of putting out a trailer when in six months, people are going to forget that trailer was ever out? They're going to be looking for the new trailer. What's the point? I think there is too much advanced stuff with putting out trailers. So I honestly don't know. I suspect we won't see it until maybe getting closer to Christmas, maybe October, November, December, somewhere in that time frame is when I think we'll get our first look at it. But who knows? Comic-Con is this week. Maybe they'll drop a teaser. And you know, like a, a little announcement teaser is fine. Like a little thing like Jurassic World Returns or so, like something little like that. That would be fine. I just don't see the need for a big full out trailer at this point. Now, as far as your concern about, did they rush Jurassic World because they only took four months to shoot it? Remember, most movies in Hollywood shoot between eight and 12 weeks. That's, I mean, that's be between two and three months. That's usually the principal photography because, you know, they've get themselves so organized and they know exactly when they're shooting what and they schedule it so perfectly that actual principal photography doesn't take that long, really. I mean, I shot a feature length film in two weeks once. Um, so yeah, it's not that big, de a big a deal. Like Avengers, uh, Infinity War just wrapped shooting. That's a huge movie with like 15 A list stars and all this kind of, all these scheduling nightmares and huge visual effects set pieces that you got to plan for and coordinate for and all this kind of stuff. It was five months of shooting, five months of principal photography. And that's a long shoot. So Jurassic World shooting for four months is not quick and not rushed. That is an appropriate amount of time. Actually, that might even be considered long. Uh, some people might look at that and say, you could have shot that in 12 weeks. Well, maybe they could have. I don't know. But no, four months is by no means, by any definition, a rush for principal photography of a movie. Now, if we were talking about they started shooting and then four months later, they finished shooting and finished all the editing and finished all the music and finished all the post-production. Well, then yes, that would be a rush job. But we're just talking about principal photography. So four months, no, nothing to get worried about. That's not a rush job at all. All right, let's move on to the next question. And the next question today comes to us from Newt. And Newt writes, Greetings, John. My question is, since Warner Brothers owns all the DC characters, why did it take so long to create a shared universe? I mean, Marvel, with all their obstacles, were able to create a shared universe with its heroes. Was it a lack of vision or innovation? You would think that DC slash WB would have gotten to this years ago. I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thanks a lot for the question, man. Look, here's the reality. The reality, everybody thinks that something has that has been done must have been easy. Like if something has been done, oh, of course they did that. Yeah, no brainer, duh. And right now we are living in an era 
where shared universes and all this kind of crap is all the rage. That's what everybody's doing now. You've got the DC shared universe. You've got Marvel shared universe. You've got the Universal Monsters shared universe. You've got the Annabelle Conjuring shared universe. You've got like everything. You've got Godzilla King Kong shared universe. Everything now is shared universe. So the mindset is, oh, well, why didn't they do it before? Was it a lack of imagination? No. It had never been done. Like doing a crossover shared universe of films. Remember, before it became the, the you know, the, the, uh, the big thing to do, it had never been done. And it was an extremely risky venture to take because now you're tying in the fate of multiple properties into something. And if that something doesn't work, you've just soured multiple properties. Now I know DC. Back in the day, they had looked at crossing over um, Bat- Michael Keaton's Batman and that whole thing, Tim Burton's Batman, with a new Superman movie. They had thought about crossing over a Batman and Superman thing, and that thing fell apart. If you want to know a little bit more about that, check out my friend John Schnepp's documentary, The Death of Superman Lives What Happened. You should check that out. So I believe you can get it on a streaming service somewhere, either on Netflix or somewhere. Anyway. Check it out or go to his website and you'll find it. Uh, they talk a little bit about that. So they had investigated it and they had looked into it. Now, I know a lot of people have forgotten about it by now, but it was a number of years ago, George Miller was prepping to shoot. I mean, they had everybody cast. They had the script. They were already building the costumes and sets. They were going to do a Justice League movie years ago with a whole new cast. Army Hammer, as a matter of fact, was going to be the new Batman. This is before anybody had ever even heard of Army Hammer. But at any rate. So George Miller is looking at basically creating a shared universe by starting off with a Justice League movie with all these characters in it. But, you know, that was ruffling some feathers the wrong way. One of the person who, you know, was had their feathers ruffled the wrong way was Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan did not like the idea of there being two Batman going. Because remember, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy had not finished yet. And Christopher Nolan didn't love the idea of Warner Brothers having another Batman going while his Batman was going on. And that caused problems. I don't know that that's ultimately what killed George Miller's uh, Justice League movie. I'm sure there was a number of factors that went into that. All I'm saying is that it was a difficult thing to do. You have multiple properties and you'd be rolling the dice and nobody had really done it yet. And it was tricky. So yeah, it's easy for us now when, you know, shared universe movies are all the rage, you go, well, why didn't Warner Brothers do it? Did they not have, were they cowards? Did they not have any vision? No, they had vision. They weren't cowards. It's just that nobody had done it yet. It was a huge thing to try. And when Marvel kind of kicked things off with, you know, Samuel Jackson showing up at the end of Iron Man saying, we've got this thing called the Avengers Initiative. Remember, that was just a little thing in a post-credit scene. If the movie Iron Man didn't work, they could have pulled the plug on that really quick and they could have changed their plans. So they didn't really commit to it with the Iron Man movie. They just put it in as a little tag post-credit scene. And if Iron Man was a flop, they could have pulled the plug on it real simple. Would have been easy. To, so even Marvel, who kind of got it started, they didn't jump into it, you know, feet first. They kind of just dipped their toe in the water a little bit. And it worked great. It's like, okay, full steam ahead in the way that they went. And sure, they had their plans, but they would have changed those plans if Iron Man hadn't worked. So it's easy in hindsight to look back and say, well, why didn't they do it? Well, because 
it was tricky and it had never been done. At least never been done on any big, huge, multi-million dollar scale like DC would have had to have done to get things rolling. And they just did it a different way. All right, thanks a lot for the question. The next question comes to us from Tampa Movie Guy who writes, been following you since the Man of Steel review in 2013. It's crazy how many people found me that way. Uh, my question is, what do you think of the recent Netflix movies, War Machine and Okja? While these get talked about a lot when they are announced due to the talent involved, I feel like upon release on Netflix, they get nowhere near the attention that theater-released movies get. No one is talking about them. Does that mean nobody is seeing them? All right, thanks a lot for the question, Tampa Movie Guy. Um... Yeah, so look, it became kind of a big thing that we were hearing more and more of Netflix, like these big movies, quote unquote, big movies with some big name talent being attached to them were getting picked up by Netflix to be released there. So, you know, obviously we had a bunch of them with Kevin James and Adam Sandler a bunch, but then this one with Brad Pitt comes along, War Machine. And there's this other one Martin Scorsese's doing with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. I mean, that's huge too. And I remember back in the day, I said when, when they started talking about this, I said, here's my fear. My fear is this, is there is more money to be made on big hit movies in theaters than there are on Netflix. I mean, that's just the way it is. Nobody disputes that. My fear is that these are movies that couldn't get picked up elsewhere, that other studios looked at, didn't want, uh, and that, it didn't say that was a fact. It said that was my fear. And my fear was the same for War Machine. And then I saw the trailer for Brad Pitt's War Machine, and I thought, this actually looks like it could be pretty good. Then it came out on Netflix, and the movie sucks. It just straight up sucks. And I was really interested because I really like Brad Pitt. I like Anthony Michael Hall. I think those guys are great. And the movie just straight up sucked. And, you know, obviously all the Kevin James stuff, all the Adam Sandler stuff that has gone direct, it's, it's all sucked. It's all just been terrible, all this direct to Netflix stuff. But the reality is right now there is a content war going on. You've got Netflix and HBO and you've got Amazon and you got Hulu and you got everybody scrambling to create original content. Because remember, Hulu never used to be, really be about original content. Netflix never used to be about original content. Amazon Prime never used to be about original content. It was just, you know, depositories for existing content that you could go and access. You'd first, you know, Netflix, you mail order your DVDs and then it became a streaming service that you can watch the movies. And all of a sudden Netflix started getting into the HBO business of creating original content. And now you've got this content war and everybody's upping the stakes. Now, Okja is another story. I am hearing a lot of people really like Okja. I am one of the seven people in Los Angeles who has not seen the film yet. I haven't sat down to watch it. I'm hearing good things about it. Though. I hear really good things about it. But all I know is that I've seen War Machine and it, I thought it sucked. And now I'm really worried about this Martin Scorsese film, even though why on earth would you ever be nervous about a Martin Scorsese film? And yet here I am, I'm nervous about it. Because again, I'm asking the question, why didn't a big studio pick this up? If this movie could have, if this movie could have been good and it could have made a lot of money, why did nobody pick it up? And uh, I'm a little bit nervous about that. All right. The next question comes to us from Tim Dublisia, who writes, Hey, John, love the new podcast. You have mentioned many times how much you like Batman versus Superman, and I am in total agreement with you. I also know that we are in the minority, <laughs> pretty much. Um, if the infamous Martha scene never happened, do you think it would have been more widely accepted? 
To me, it is the only part of the film where I found myself rolling my eyes. Always keep up the great work. Well, thanks a lot for the question, Tim. Um, Yeah, the Martha scene, the Martha scene, the Martha scene. How many internet memes and everything have there been made over the Martha scene? Okay, look, I actually, when I first saw Batman versus Superman, the Martha scene didn't bother me because I initially interpreted it differently than a lot of other people interpreted it. Like a lot of people interpreted the scene very at face value with, wait, you said the name Martha. That's my mother's name. Ah, Like I understand that. And I understand why people would interpret it that way too. I, I totally get it. But that's not how it hit me. And I actually put up a video on my channel called Defending the Martha Scene. You can find that. Maybe I'll, if I remember, I'll put a link to it in the description below. But I put up a video called Defending the Martha Scene. And here's how and why I defend that scene is because I, the way that scene initially hit me, the way I interpret the scene is that, remember, Bruce has this conscience called Alfred, who has been in his ear about his whole outlook on Superman, that, you know, and that he's been turning cruel and he's been turning mean and all these types of things. It, he's kind of ab abandoned what he was to become something else in the light of this global threat that Batman sees being Superman, right? So, the way I interpreted the Martha scene is that when Batman now, he's beaten Superman, he's got him down and he's getting ready to kill him. That is a moment of crisis for Batman. Like he's a, he's about to straight up murder a helpless guy just laying at his feet who is now defenseless. A guy who has been taken out of the fight. He's now beaten. He's done. He's defenseless. He's just laying there and Batman is about to execute him. Now that's different from the different guys Batman kills in Batman versus Superman who are armed, who are dangerous, who are threats. Superman at this point is not a threat. He's done at least as far as the fight goes. And he's getting ready to execute him, right? So at that moment, though, in comes Lois Lane, throwing herself on top of Superman, blocking, if you will, Batman from Superman. She's basically putting her life on the line to defend Superman, which has got to strike Batman. And is certainly, this guy I see is a global threat. And here's somebody willing to die for them. And then on top of that, instead of asking for mercy, instead of groveling whatever, the words that come out of Superman's mouth are about somebody else. Forget the name Martha for a second. The words that come out of his mouth are a plea to save and protect somebody else. Here's his beaten foe at his feet, getting ready to die. And the foe isn't thinking about himself. He's thinking about the good of somebody else. And yes, he uses the name Martha, which is also his own mother's name. And that becomes a shock moment for him. And I think in that moment, the way I always interpreted it is that all that stuff is hitting Batman at once. And Batman, being the world's greatest detective, I believe in that moment, he's deducing everything. I always saw it as in that moment, he started putting all the pieces of the puzzle together Everything that Lex Luthor was behind and that Lex Luthor has planned and that Lex Luthor was the architect of, I interpret that the world's greatest detective at that moment put all the pieces together because of a human being throwing themselves on Superman to protect him. The fact that Superman's about to die and instead of groveling for his own life, he was thinking about the well-being of somebody else. He was performing the ultimate act of selflessness at that moment. And then when he utters the name of his own mother, 
At that moment, he's hearing Alfred's words in his head about good men becoming cruel, and all of that hits him at once. And that's why I think you see Ben Affleck play that scene perfectly, where he's now confused. It's information overload. He's now having to question everything he had thought for the past three years. And he staggers back, and he throws the spear down, and he just doesn't know what to do. To me, the Martha scene was a good scene. However, I totally get that if you didn't interpret the scene the way I did initially, and you just saw it as, oh, your mother's name is Martha, my mother's name is Martha, ah, then it becomes across as pretty damn ridiculous. I get it. I totally do. So the question is, if that scene was never in the movie in the first place, do I think people would have accepted the movie better? And the answer to that question is no. I don't think people would have accepted the movie more because... You're well into the third act of the movie by then. And for the most people, Batman vs. Superman. Now, I, I gave Batman vs. Superman positive review. I'm a fan of the movie. But I know it's not perfect. And I know it had its problems. And I think the majority of people, the movie had already lost them by the time they got to the Martha scene. In talking to a few friends of mine who didn't like Batman vs. Superman, the Martha scene just became the representation to them of everything that was wrong with the movie. By the time they got to the Martha scene, they had already checked out of the movie. They already didn't like the movie by the time you got there. Because like I said, it was well into the third act. And they had already been checked out. So no, if the Martha scene hadn't happened, I don't think it would have changed a lot of people's minds about the movie. There wouldn't have been the big running joke. That's for sure. Um, But yeah, unfortunately, I think the other problems with the movie that other people had with it had already mounted up and became insurmountable by the time they reached the Martha scene. So no, as much of a joke as the Martha scene became, even though I think it's just because most people misinterpreted the scene and what Zack Snyder was going for, um, I don't think it really would have made any difference. I think it still would have gotten what it got, unfortunately. All right. Thanks a lot for the question. And the final question today, sticking on the theme of the DCEU, Jeff Steinbeck writes, Hello, John. Big fan. Thanks so much, Jeff. Since we have four films in the DCEU now, how would you rank them so far? Thanks for taking my question and keep up the great work. Yeah, um, I am one of the few people in the world who I've actually liked all the DCEU movies. I don't think they're all great, but I've liked them all. So here's how I would rank them. In fourth place, I would put Suicide Squad. That was a hot mess of a movie. It, It was. It was an absolute hot mess of a movie. But I also found it very fun and very engaging. And for me, I found the fun outweighed all the other problems with it. I liked Jared Leto's Joker in it. I loved the relationship between Joker and Harley in it. They should have had more of them in it, absolutely. I thought a lot of the action stuff was done very well. Yes, they made a whole bunch of mistakes, absolutely. And that's why it's in last place for me. But Suicide Squad for me comes in fourth. In third place would be Batman versus Superman, with or without the Martha scene. <laughs> Batman versus Superman comes in third place. So that then leaves the question: Well, what's comes? What's two and number one? Number two is Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman knocked it out of the park. I knew Wonder Woman was going to be good when Patty Jenkins came on to direct. I think most people then knew that they were going to knock that out, and then they were going to isolate Wonder Woman in her own period of time, so it wouldn't have any of the baggage of any of the other movies. I thought that was a very smart move, and I thought they did it very well. Yes, I'm still a believer that I don't think Gal Gadot is a very good actress. I think she did fine in Wonder Woman, but I do think Wonder Woman would have been an even better movie had they got a better actress. I know a lot of people have a different opinion than me, and that's the best thing about movies, is that it's all subjective, we can all have different opinions, and we can still be friends. Um, 
But yeah, but I think Wonder Woman is a really enjoyable movie. I saw it multiple times in theaters. So I would say it's number two. And to me, number one, I believe is the most underappreciated, under-understood uh, comic book movies ever made, which is Man of Steel. I'm telling you, I that movie gets better every time I watch it. I remember when I sat down with uh, Schnepp and uh, it might have been, I can't remember if it was Harloff or not, but we were going to do a DVD commentary of Man of Steel. And both of those guys were kind of iffy on Man of Steel. And I laid out why that movie is freaking brilliant. It is a total masterpiece of the genre. As far as the comic book genre goes, I believe Man of Steel is a masterpiece in filmmaking. So, and I sat down with Schnepp and Harloff and then they watched it again with me. And, and like even Schnepp now, Schnepp loves Man of Steel now. <laughs> Schnepp's like, dude, you're totally right. Like he loves that movie. I think that is the most underrated comic book movie ever made. And I think if people watch it and give it another chance, I think it, what threw a lot of people off the first time they saw Man of Steel was the fact that it wasn't the Superman they were used to. I mean, and, and look, I'm not trying to put words in people's mouths. I've been told by other critics that basically they were looking for the Superman of the 1960s. They wanted the, gosh, man, let me get that kitten out of your tree for you. Smile, glimmer in his teeth. You know, they were looking for that Superman. But I believe Man of Steel was a totally accurate interpretation of the character if the character was today, you know, in the 2010s. That's the way Superman should be interpreted. And he was a good-hearted, he's still the Boy Scout, but he's the Boy Scout now really wrestling with how do you manifest that in the world as it is today. It's a very different world than the 1960s. And I know people had different issues with the movie, and that's fine too, but I just know that a number of people that I talked to um, who didn't appreciate Man of Steel the way I appreciate Man of Steel was because it wasn't that it didn't meet the pre-existing expectation they had of Superman in their head, which was the 1960 Superman. And I thought he was great. And I thought Henry Cavill is a world-class actor. I thought the Kal-El he gave us on screen, I, I, I said, I think he's the best. And, and I know a lot of people find it sacrilegious, but I believe Henry Cavill Superman and his performance of it beats Christopher Reeve. And I know a lot of people say that's sacrilegious and that's fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. That's cool. But yeah, so for me, it would be number four, Suicide Squad, number three, Batman versus Superman, number two, Wonder Woman, number one, Man of Steel. That's how I would rank them. How would you guys rank the DCEU films at this point? Jump down to the comment section and leave your thoughts. And that will do it for today's episode of the John Campion Podcast, guys. Thanks so much for joining me. As I said, for all the topics I discussed, Jump in the comment section. Get the conversation going. What do you think about those issues? How would you rank films? What do you think if they just simply took out the Martha scene? It would have done better. How do you think Netflix future looks with creating a, their own original films? Good or bad? I want to hear what your guys' thoughts are. Also, guys, while you're here, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on Facebook and on Twitter, simply at John Campia. And guys, one more time, I want to remind you that if you're going to be in San Diego at Comic-Con this year... Thursday at 11 a.m. in room 7AB. It is the annual Masters of the Web panel. Me, John Schnepp, Christian Harloff, Trisha Hirschberger, and the great Dan Merle. We're all going to be there talking about the current state of comic book movies. Please make sure to join us. That'll do it for me, guys. Thanks so much for joining me. And until next time, bye-bye. The internet has changed. So should the way you bank. PNC Virtual Wallet for Digital Banking. It's time for a change. Now through March 31st, earn up to $300 when you open and use a select new virtual wallet product. Simply establish a qualifying direct deposit. To learn more, visit a branch or pnc.com slash checking offer. PNC Bank. Make today the day.
Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated, PNC Bank National Association member FDIC.